You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of your uh, beautiful, wonderful faces. For me personally, I have not been here in, um, this is my third week now because of a myriad of circumstances, so I'm thankful to see each and every one of you this morning. And um, If this is your first time, we want to welcome you to Providence Community Church Um, and that you chose to gather with us this morning. We're so grateful for that. My name is Ty Gaston. I serve as the Director of Family and Discipleship Ministries here at Providence. And here at Providence, we are a people committed to a single and compelling vision, and that is to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And it's to that end that we teach the Bible every week because we believe it's been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And Uh, We're going to be continuing a series uh, titled The Great Eight, where we'll be spending time walking through Romans chapter 8 and being encouraged and and challenged in the promises of God. And the passage that we'll be hearing from this morning will be found in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not, uh, there should be one located in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible you can call your own, please feel free to take that as a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. Once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Once again, welcome to Providence. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you, uh, and, and thanks for making it out during these difficult times. Uh, I know it's stressful, but uh, like Ty said, we've been in a series called The Great Eight, uh, exploring uh, Romans 8, which has been considered by many people in history the greatest chapter of the Bible. Uh, it encompasses a lot, uh, that a lot of promises of God, a lot about the love of God, a lot about what's maybe going on in our world and has been going on in our world since the day that sin entered it, and so it's very revealing and awesome, and so we're excited to walk through it. Uh, As Ty said, we'll be in verses 5 through the first part of verse 9. Today is what we'll be covering, and we'll be talking about uh, the flesh versus spirit, Uh, but what I want to do before we get into it and kind of get going is I just want to just pray. I just want to pray and ask God that he would help us in his word, that he would help us to receive his word, to understand it, uh, and that it would be delivered faithfully, so... If you would join me this morning in that, that would be great. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gift of being here this morning. And God, our simple prayer this morning is, would you help us to hear your word? And not just hear it physically, but to hear it in a way that it makes sense to us. To hear it in such a way where our hearts are connected to to it, and it brings change in us, it brings faith in you, it brings joy in you, it brings devotion to your glory. 
God, this is what we want to happen in your word. And so we just pray, God, help us. We're in desperate need. Without your spirit to reveal your word, we have nothing. We have nothing that will do us any good. And so, God, would you do that to us this morning? And would you help us to find assurance in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, today? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I, I want to just kind of briefly kind of uh, maybe catch us up uh, what's going on in verses uh, 1 through 4 as we jump into 5. So the overall picture uh, in verses 1 through 4, this is what you get. You get the famous line that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's just this, this line that comes off the heels of Romans 7, which we're going to read a little bit here in a minute. Uh, but basically, it's this line that says, even though we are not perfectly righteous, that is clear, and it's going to be clear in this text and pretty much every text that we read, uh, we're messed up. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we are messed up to the core and, and we still sin, right? But in Christ, because of the gospel, there is no condemnation for us, which means the greatest fear we could ever have, which is to be condemned by God eternally, forever and ever, um, is no longer a part of who we are. That fear is no longer a part of us, but rather we've been reconciled to him and therefore we are not condemned by him. And in him, though sinful and messed up, we are forgiven, we are healed, we are changed, and we will be glorified with him one day. So, that's what Romans 8 starts with. And then it goes on to explain, well, how does that happen? And then you get into Romans 3, which basically says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law, which stood against us, right, would be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so there's two major things that happen because Jesus came, and reconciled, we got two major things. The first one is that uh, God condemned sin in the perfect flesh of Jesus Christ. And so uh, sin is now condemned. It doesn't have the same power that it had upon our lives, the same bondage, okay? But that has been, uh, we've been reconciled by Christ and therefore in his flesh, he has taken on the sin. The analogy is like he's absorbed all of God's wrath that stood against us because of our sin, like a sponge absorbs water. Jesus Christ absorbed that into his own body on the cross, thereby killing the power and the penalty of sin that was our lot, if that makes sense. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing is that not only did he do that in condemning sin, but now he has fulfilled and is fulfilling the requitous, the, the, the requitous, that's a new word I made up. You should tweet that later. The righteous requirement, sorry, uh, of the law in us who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And so now the requirement of the law with all of its legal demands, as the book of Colossians says, that, that stood against us, right? Um, that has been fulfilled both perfectly in Jesus Christ because he was absolutely sinless, very important doctrine for our faith, but now also through the spirit is being fulfilled in us as we say no to walking in order, uh, in, in according to the flesh and, and, and walk according to the spirit. So this is what's happening. So Paul now is going to make a distinction between those in the flesh and those in the spirit. Paul is gonna create this worldview right now for us that there are only two kinds of people. And it's not Democrat or Republican. It has nothing to do with race. 
It is simply two kinds of people in this world. And they are those who are driven by the flesh and those who are driven by the spirit. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a look in this text, what does it mean to be driven by the flesh? What does it mean to be driven by the spirit? And what are some maybe implications from this that we could use uh, to maybe find some assurance in the spirit of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would be those who are in the spirit, not in the flesh. That's what I want to do today. So let's look at those two. And I just want to say, I think it's very important for us in the South because there is no neutral person in this world. You're either with the flesh or with the spirit. No one's in the middle, okay? It's not like this, well, maybe I lean one way, lean the other. No, it's you are in the spirit or in the flesh. This is a distinction Paul's making. So let's, um, let's look at this. There's no semi-Christians, okay? There's no JV and varsity team of Christians. It's either in the spirit or in the flesh. So let's look at this. Let's talk about the fleshly uh, person first. And we're just gonna kind of read through the text again just to kind of go over it, make it fresh in our minds. So start in verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let's talk about this fleshly person. So what does it mean to set your mind on something? I think this is an important uh, topic to discuss. And um, I'm no scholar in biblical languages, and I'm, no, uh, I'm not a person that's great at definitions, but here, here's my go at it, Okay. In one word, I would say, if your mind is set on something, you have a bent towards something, is what I would say. So we've talked about this a lot, but uh, if you have a natural bent towards the flesh, right, that's where your mind goes, that's where your life goes, right, that's where you're leaning. If you have a natural bent towards the spirit, in the same way, that's kind of where it's going. This, this setting your mind implies this continuous action that's happening. It's this continual bent towards either the wrong things or the right things, okay? So that's what setting your mind is. And so uh, we kind of value what we, we set our minds to, right? And so we have a natural bent as fleshly people towards the things of the flesh. And I just want to say, this is true about everyone unless Christ by his grace saves you. And we'll get into that. But um, this is true about everyone, everyone in the world by nature, as Ephesians says, right, are uh, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We are naturally born, naturally bent towards the things of the flesh and the sinful things of life. That's our bent. That's our natural joy. You do not have to tell a child, right, to feel this way. They just do. Now, a child may not be as developed as you and I, right? We're pretty good at getting the fleshly things, but nonetheless, it's there. It's intrinsic, The Bible paints this picture of us as fallen, as lost, as dead, as in desperate need and desperate trouble. If you carry around a worldview that says people are inherently good and some people just get it wrong and then many people get it right, you're going to be very confused about what's going on in the news, right? You're going to be very confused about your own heart and what's going on there. You are desperately wicked. And this is important to remember and what Paul is trying to tell us here. So when we talk about the things of the flesh, we're talking about the fallen human nature 
that is inclined away from God, not toward God. So the sinful passions, the sinful things that we seek joy in, the worldly things, as John would put it. Um, And John Piper has a quote in his look at the book that I think does a good summary. He says this about the things of the flesh. He says, things of the flesh are everything minus God. Everything minus God. And he gets this from Matthew 16, 23. I want to show you this real quick because it's like the same wording. And this is where Jesus is starting to tell that he's going to be crucified. And he's going to be basically taken by the hands of evil men, crucified, and he'll rise three days later. And Peter basically rebukes him. (laughs) Peter says, no way, Lord. This could never be. And this is uh, Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so this is his rebuke to Peter is basically you're setting your mind on the things of the flesh, right? You're setting your mind on the things um, minus God. And so this is just natural, a part of who we are, a part of the flesh is sinful. It's bent away from God. And this is a problem. Uh, But it is the nature of every human. We are not naturally uh, God pleasers, if you will. So the summary of this is if you live according to the flesh and set your mind according to the flesh, you are dead. Okay, so to, set, to live according to the flesh will produce a mind that is given over to the flesh. That's what I want to say, okay? So to live according to the flesh will basically produce a mind that is given over to the things of the flesh that is bent towards those things. So he goes on to explain in some pretty good detail about what this means. So we say, okay, if you're in the flesh... You're dead. What's he talking about? I would say he's not talking about uh, physical death, which is coming for all of us. Uh, And I don't think in this scripture, particular in this text, that he is talking about eternal death in hell either. Though that is coming for those who would remain in the flesh, but that's not what he's talking about. In here, in this text, when he refers to death, he's talking about the spiritual deadness of every person who has not been reconciled by Christ in God's spirit to God the Father. So every person that has not been saved is the word that we would use, is spiritually dead. They cannot understand the things of God, though they could be scholars in the Bible. They cannot understand the goodness of God, though they memorize how to speak about the gospel. There is a difference between intellectually knowing what Christianity is and the experience of who God is and actually being reconciled to God. It's the difference between death and life, which is very different and the opposite. So that's what this death is. And so um, apart from Christ in the flesh, we are dead. The Bible does not hold any punches from us. We are dead. We're not dying. We're not injured or dead. We have no ability to rescue ourselves. We are dead. Now, we got to ask the question, what is this death? Well, he goes on to explain. He kind of does this. He's connecting a lot of this. So, okay, so you're dead for this, for this, for this. He's kind of giving you some explanations of what he's saying. So what does it mean to be dead? There's a few things. One, this death is hostility toward God. It's hostility toward God. This is why I say there's no neutral person in the universe, right? You're either in love with him or you hate him. This whole idea of indifference uh, to God in a sense makes sense when you're trying to explain the spiritual depravity, but in another sense, it doesn't exist. There's no indifference. 
Now, it may look like and manifest like indifference towards the things of God, but there is either hatred or there is love. This is the distinction that is made. So hostility toward God. So once again, there's no neutral parties. It's hostility. It is war against him. And I've seen this play out in so many spheres, but um, you just think about people who say, I don't believe in God. And just think about how angry they get, right? <laughs> They're so angry about this God that doesn't exist. And, and that's, that's an important thing to maybe look into, but we're going to continue. So how does this hostility with God manifest? Paul goes on to explain in uh, verse 7 where he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So what does it look like to be hostile to God? It is to not submit to God's law. Not submitting to his law. Now, we talked about the law last week, and so you can go back and listen to that. But uh, quite simply, uh, the fleshly person will not only be unwilling to submit to God's law, but they will be in bondage to sin to the point that they cannot submit to God's law. That's what it means to be in the flesh. It means you can't submit to it. The, the law of God does not delight you. Now, this could kind of play out in two ways. I want to be clear here because, once again, in the South, I think it's important to define. Hostility towards God and not submitting to his law does not only look like an outward, obvious rebellion into which you hate God, you're public about it on Facebook, and that's who you define yourself to be is a God hater or someone that just hates Christianity because it's a crutch or because you can fill in the blank, right? Now, it can look like that, and it does look like that for many people, just an all-out uh, despising of the word of God as this being nothing of any importance. But the problem, and maybe the more common in our city and maybe our state would be uh, maybe more of a southern kind of veiled submission, uh, lack of submission rather to God's law. So outwardly, you would say, yes, I love the Bible. It's amazing. I love God's law. I just want to get to know it. I want to obey it. I want to do all these things. But if we're honest, right, maybe, <laughs> maybe God's word sits on the shelf for far too long. Maybe it's not really important to us. Maybe we don't actually really care about submitting to it and finding delight in it, but rather uh, we care about just being perceived that way because it would be maybe make us feel good or maybe it would, um, you know, help us look good in front of others. Uh, for a lot of my family, it's just so funny to, to see their contradictions. You know, they'll, they'll say like, okay, okay, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And I'll kind of ask them about salvation and, and the common story is, well, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I think it's just going to be fine, right? <laughs> There's no desire to submit to God's law. It just says compared to other people, I seem pretty awesome or at least pretty okay, pretty average, and I'm good for average, all right? I want to be the most average person in the world, and that's going to be fine. God's going to be like, ah, you did it, champ, you know? You didn't murder someone, so you're fine. Um, but it doesn't work that way, right? It's just hostility. It's just not wanting to submit to God's law. And here, here's the truth. It's this bondage that you cannot, no matter how hard you try. This is why people who would try to enter into salvation, not through the reconciling blood of Jesus Christ, but through their own good works, are going to be constantly frustrated and struggling with guilt. Why? Because you cannot submit to God's law. You can't do it apart from the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, you cannot submit. You will always rebel. You will always despise the law of God. And then just to add on a little further, what does the inability to submit to God's law produce? And that's the inability to please God. 
And verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The words of God the Father to the Son, Jesus Christ, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, does not apply to those in the flesh. Now, obviously, that was particularly to Jesus. But in Jesus, right, we get that pleasure of the Father applied to us, but not if you're in the flesh. So these are important things to ask. And so I would say, what is a clear indication that you're in Christ? It's a good question. We should ask this all the time. What are some clear indications that we are in Christ? Um, How do we think about God's law? Do we find joy in submitting to God's law? Not perfectly. We're going to get to Romans 7. There's definitely not a perfect obedience in any Christian uh, until (laughs) we rise to be in glory one day in the new heavens and the new earth and we're giving new glorified bodies. But how do you view God's law? Is it joy? Do you submit to it? These are important questions. So this is the first distinction. This is the person in the flesh that Paul is giving. And this is all of us, right, apart from the grace of God stepping in and giving us his spirit. So let's move on to the spiritual person. So those who set their minds on the things of the spirit have life and peace. This is what Paul gives us, okay? Um, So the life that lives according to the spirit will produce a mind that is given over to the things of the spirit. We will have a natural bent towards the things of the spirit. Now, We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. I did my best not to bleed over into the sermon next week. For whoever's going to preach that, it may be tough because I I did my best, but I wasn't good at it. But I'm just saying, we're not, the the text right here that we're in, verses 5 through the first part of 9, doesn't give us a list like it does for the flesh. So when Paul's explaining the flesh, he gives us lists. You're hostile towards God. You don't submit to God's law. You can't even do it, right? You're not pleasing to God. Um, So life in the spirit, I think we can conclude by just using our minds and deductive reasoning that since there's this dichotomy of the flesh and the spirit, then what's true for the flesh, the opposite would be true for the spirit, right? The opposite would be true. So a few examples. The spiritual life joyfully submits to God's law, not in a perfect sense, but a true sense. So first thing, your life in the spirit, this person joyfully submits to God's law. And that joyful is important. It is a delight for us to be given over to the word of God, to submit under the word of God as our ultimate authority, our ultimate direction in life and our ultimate path to obedience is to submit to it. So once again, we submit to God's law in a joyful, true sense, not a perfect sense, but a joyful, true one. Second thing, spiritual life is not hostile to God, but rather it partakes in a genuine love for him and a hunger to know him. So instead of being hostile towards God, it's like this war ends. That's why it says life and peace. It's this genuine love and desire to know God, to know him. Do you spend time with God? Do you pray to God? Do you talk to God? Do you want to know God? Is there a genuine love for him? Not just in what he's done, but also in who he is. These are important questions. Spiritual life has peace with God, which quenches all our fears of condemnation, and it um, ends the hostility we previously had. We were at war, and now we have peace. We were not reconciled, now we're reconciled. So the spiritual life, the whole demeanor changes. And we're going to define why that is. But, so this is, to sum it up, the fleshly person, 
will be hostile to God. They will hate God. There will be no neutrality here, okay? Uh, they will despise him. They will despise his word. This will manifest in a bunch of different ways, in religious ways and non-religious ways. But nonetheless, the person of the flesh, that is by nature who they are, by nature how they will be. And the person of the spirit, I, I would maybe dare say at their core, right? No more righteous than the person here, but... The difference is they've been reconciled by God, as we talked about last week, in his perfect flesh, by his perfect blood, in his perfect righteousness that we've been given. We now walk by the Spirit, and there's life there. There's peace there. It's not a perfect peace, but it is there. We can look at the idea of judgment and condemnation, and we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for me. Because I am in Christ Jesus, right? There's life there. There's vibrancy. There's a love for God. There's a love for his law, a love for his word. And it brings us such joy. So that's the dichotomy here. Now I want to bring just three, I think, hopefully helpful things that we could think about. And I kind of named them, but I want to sum them up in uh, some clear wording. So let's try to do this here. First thing is that righteousness in Christ is not a spectrum. Righteousness in Christ is not a spectrum. So it's kind of like this, okay? There's, there's, like I mentioned before, there's no neutral point. It's not like, okay, we all start off as babies, neutral. And then we have a choice, right? We can either kind of start to lean this way uh, or we can start to lean this way. But it's not a spectrum, okay? It's not like that. It's not like, okay, I'm a, let me explain it like this, Okay. So if you look at it as a gauge, okay, there's no neutral zone. It's either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. It's not like, well, I'm semi in Christ. I'm at least kind of this way and I'm decent. It's not that. Paul in this text is not trying to say, okay, here's a list of things, a list of to-dos and a list of do-nots that you should have in your life. And if you're doing them at about 51 to 52%, you're a winner. And if you're doing them at 49%, you're a loser. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not trying to put your, like, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of something, okay. If you ever played a video game, okay, and you have characters, and they have, like, a certain level of power, or a certain, you could tell I didn't really, like, play that many video games like this, but um, a certain level of power or something like that, right? It's not like you're leveling up, like Mario or something, right? It's different than that, okay? Now, there are probably people in here who are more righteous than others, or maybe better at obedience than others, um, I would paint myself pretty low on the obedience scale. But the point is, are you in Christ? Or are you not in Christ? Paul is not trying to paint this spectrum. It's kind of like the fruits of the Spirit. Paul was not saying you should have a conversation about how many fruits you're good at and how many fruits you're bad at. No, he was saying, listen, it is fruit. These things should be being produced in your life if you have the Spirit of God. And in the same way, Paul is saying there should be life and peace and vibrancy if you have the Spirit. He's not trying to create a competition. He's simply stating that. And I know that from Romans 7. Look at the way he points himself. Let's read Romans 7, starting verse 21 together. This is Paul, right on the heels uh, of, or sorry, right on the front end of Romans 8. says this, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my member, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators would say, oh, well, this is probably Paul before his salvation, 
And I just think that that's such a bad interpretation of the scriptures. Paul is in agony as a Christian saying, I delight in my inner being. I am reconciled to Christ. I delight in the law of God, but there is a war in me. I do the very things that I despise, which is the works of the flesh. And in his anguish, he says, who will save me from these things? Thanks be to God. And then he goes into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is thankful that the grace of God has rescued him, not because he feels like he's really high on the spectrum of righteousness in Christ, but because Christ has bought his righteousness free of charge to him and has given it to him. And therefore, he now walks in humble, not perfect, but true, joyful submission to God's word. Is what's happening in Paul's life. So it's not a spectrum. Don't think of it that way. Second thing, righteousness in Christ is a new nature. It's a new nature. It's a new nature that actually begins to fulfill the law of Christ to love God and love one another. I love this, okay? It's you have been born again is what the Bible uses. This is so important. Um, You've been born again. It's a new birth. It's completely new. You were born into the flesh, but now through Christ and the gospel, you've been born into the life of the spirit. It's not merely a decision you made to say, I'm not gonna go down this road. I'm gonna go down this road now. It's no, you have been like crucified and murdered with Christ. And now you've been raised to life with him, with a new nature, a new spirit within you, a new joy within you that says, I want to obey him because I love him. That says, thanks be to God, for there is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. It's a completely new birth, a completely new nature. Romans 6 and 7 gives us a robust argument for how the gospel relates to the law, but now Paul explains how we can actually submit to God's law by the power of the spirit. I'm gonna beat this to death, but not perfectly, just truly, okay? (laughs) I gotta keep saying that or else my words are gonna be construed here. So when we talk about living a righteous life, which means real, like real, authentic, actual obedience to God's law, uh, and we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how we could never earn any ounce of righteousness under the law because we're sinful and it's only by God's grace that we're saved. These are not in contradiction, but they are reconciled in Christ and in this text. So I say this, we should not exclude any talk of righteous living out of fear of missing the gospel. And we should not exclude any talk of the gospel out of fear of missing righteous living for the believer. They are anchored together eternally. These ideas. So we shouldn't be afraid to mention that we should live a righteous life and call one another to live a righteous life and not sin. But we also shouldn't be afraid to mention the gospel and say, dude, you're not gonna live a righteous life. It's the point of the gospel. You can't do it, right? That's why verse three, right? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law is weakened by the flesh. So Sam Alberry from, uh, he's an elder at uh, Emmanuel Nashville. He, he said this, he said, God's plan and design was never just to have an existing group of non-condemned people. <laughs> no, his plan, his heart is to have a people who walk with him. So God's plan wasn't just to reconcile the people and make them non-condemned and leave it at that. 
That's what Paul's getting at here. God's plan was not only to do that, to take away the condemnation from those who justly deserved it because he is rich in mercy and rich in grace, but he was making a people who would live for him, who would follow him, who would walk in his spirit and therefore fulfill the law, which is summed up in loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. To walk in this And once again, we don't do it perfectly, but God is making a people who do that very thing. This is what separates us from being in the flesh. Not only our disposition towards God, but our disposition towards one another and the way in which we live out the law by his grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, which we will talk about next week. Um, So through the Spirit... The law of Christ is being fulfilled in us. This is not happening perfectly because as the Bible says, we are awaiting eagerly the redemption of our bodies because of this sin that dwells in us. But there is a new nature that is being carried by the spirit and given the grace to obey and want to obey, all right? It's, it's, like, it's kind of like a... I don't suggest uh, watching this movie. I don't condone anything in this movie, but it's kind of like in The Breakup. If you've ever seen that with Vince Vaughn, they're getting this big argument and he's like, she, he didn't do the dishes and she's very upset about it. And so he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I was supposed to do the dishes. And they get this big argument. She finally says, I just want you to want to do the dishes. And Vince Vaughn pauses at this great point in the movie and says, why would I want to do the dishes? Uh, he's just very clear. Like, why, why would that be something I want, Right. And for us, it's that not always that we perfectly want to obey everything because we do rebel, but it's that we, we want to obey, we long. Where's our desire? Where's our heart reaching for? Where's it bent towards? What's our mind set on? It is the spirit of God, the things of the spirit, the things that are pleasing to God. This actually happens in your life. You don't have to choose to sin every time. That's what the book of Hebrews says, or, or Maybe it's 1 Corinthians, not Hebrews. It says there, there's a way of escape that is given to us when we are tempted. So maybe I'll sum it up with this third point, which I think would anchor us in the truth of the gospel and remind us of something. Righteousness in Christ is produced by God. So the Trinity is at work in us to produce this righteousness. Let's just look at this. Just think about this for a second. The Father reconciles us from our hostility towards the Godhead through his son's work on the cross and the spirits giving us a new nature. It does not depend on you. If you are judging whether or not you are in the spirit, in Christ, based upon your ability to fulfill the law, you will always feel guilty and you will always feel unreconciled because that is not what this is based on. It's based on the God producing new nature and grace in the gospel. So to have assurance, we must come to the conclusion that we are helpless without him. Uh, I remember one of my uh, earliest memories of my sinful nature was with my cousin, Eric. I know it's weird to Eric's. I came first, so it was weird for my uncle, not for my mother. But nonetheless, we spell it different, so it's totally cool. And growing up, we would call him little Eric because he was tinier okay now it's embarrassing because he's like twice my size and buff and I just look emaciated next to him so I don't give him hugs often I kind of sit on the opposite end of the table because we still kind of call him little Eric sometimes but it's just now I'm little Eric and just anyways it's a pride thing but nonetheless I remember that he was like the sweetest kid you could ever think of I mean he was just like like a 
it's just so cute. Like those kids that would model for like Pedialyte commercials or something. And, and he was just a nice kid. I mean, he was always just thinking of other people before himself. And I just was the opposite for much of my childhood. And I remember this one time that I, I don't even know what happened. We're just playing outside. And uh, he did something that just got me so angry. I mean, very angry. And I remember I just, I, we were right by the slide. I remember that. I don't know why God gave me this memory. I think it was just to help me like, you know, remember how awful I am. But uh, I pushed him down. And I remember I got over him and I was going to punch him. I'm not kidding. I was going to punch him right in the face. And he had this like look of terror on his face. He wasn't defending himself. He wasn't fighting back. It was just sheer fear. And I wasn't a fearful person. Or not, I'll say that. I was not something to be afraid of. We'll say that. But he was very afraid. And I remember in that moment, I just stopped and I felt so guilty. And I remember thinking, I am an awful person. <laughs> And it wasn't until later that I really came to know Jesus Christ that I looked back on that memory and thought, man, we are helpless without the grace of God producing this inside of us. There is not one ounce of rightful, joyful, righteous submission to God's law in my being apart from the spirit of God giving me the power to be so. This is such an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It's such an essential thing to believe in light of our assurance in Christ. And so today, as we conclude, I present to you the person of the flesh and the person of the spirit. And I think Paul's goal in here, because he goes on in verse nine to say, you, however, are not in the flesh, but if, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God really dwells in you, right? And he gives that. And I think Paul is being cautious because he doesn't want to give false assurance where it shouldn't be. But I think he was also gracious in this moment because he's looking at the believers in Rome and he's saying, you, however, you believer are not in the flesh. If you have the spirit of God, you are in the spirit. You can't have the spirit and then be in the flesh. It doesn't work that way. And so I pray by God's grace, as you see this dichotomy of the flesh and the spirit, that you wouldn't look through, well, how much am I in the flesh? What percentage am I in the spirit? But that God, by his grace this morning, would just assure you that apart from your works, the spirit of God dwelling in you, that you are in Christ forever. And what we talked about two weeks ago, how there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus would be true for you. And you would say with Paul at the end of Romans 7, thanks be to God that he has reconciled me in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is what faith is. So I'd love to pray for us. I'd love you to join me in prayer. Let's pray that God would give us assurance, that he would help us discern who we are in him. And that every single day by his grace and the power of the spirit that he would help us put to death the deeds of the body and of the flesh. And that we would walk in him and love him and love one another by his grace. So you guys can stand with me as we respond in worship and I would just love to pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, once again for your word. As we look at Romans 8... God, I am blown away at the careful detail of your promises and your love for us. God, you've done this in such a way that's just, it's beautiful. And so God, I pray like we prayed at the beginning, that you would help us to see what's in this text. 
God, that you would help us when we hear the words from Paul, the church at Rome, that you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. God, I pray you do a mighty work in those who are in the spirit today, that they would believe with all of their heart, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, that they've been reconciled in you forever. Nothing, no one will ever separate them from this love that is in you, but God is given freely without cost to us because you paid the cost in full for us. God, would that truth help us to then, by the power of your spirit, begin to walk in joyful submission to your word, your law. God, may your law, as the Psalm 119 says over and over again, be our delight. Would it be the meditation of our heart and the joy of our being? And God, I pray for those who may find themselves to be absolutely, positively in the flesh this morning without any real spiritual life and peace and vibrancy. God, my prayer is that you would bring life today. Oh God, you are reconciling through your word. You're reconciling us unto you that we might have life and peace. And would those who are in the flesh hear that call today and come because today you offer salvation by your grace alone. And we ask all this in your son Jesus, saving and precious name.